You're about to experience filling the air with words. Version 2.0, honoring Jane Shannon, who co-created this conversational podcast. On the Zoom line is Johnny Whitmore in Hidden Valley Lake Ranch, whatever it's called, California. Johnny is a, a friend and a professional associate. And since I don't have the bandwidth to go through all her various accomplishments and background, I'm going to let you do it. Hi, Johnny. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm, uh, you know, I'm as good as I can be at this particular moment. Boy, I hear that. My heart goes out to everybody. So tell our listeners about you in a concise way, and then we'll dig right into all of the excitement that's happening in the world. I don't know if excitement's the right word. All of the stuff that's happening in our world regarding, you know, that that thing, that cloud, that whatever it is. Well, I should start by saying I'm what I'm not. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. And I'm no longer a financial advisor or a business consultant. I've done an awful lot of things in my life, Robert. And human and organizational development have been at the root of most of it, as has public service. And so you are in this idyllic spot in Northern California, shut in. Tell me about your life right now. Well, I'm working with a great producer who is helping me get my first family book done and headed toward some documentaries and a movie, it looks like, with some new educational curriculum to boot. And when I'm not working on that these days with COVID-19, I'm limited to my yard, as you know, and I have a pretty good-sized compost. And I'm told that if everybody had a backyard compost, that it would actually make a significant difference to the greenhouse effect. So I've expanded mine over the years, and it gives me beautiful black gold soil. And it shows my roses, my peaches, my lemons, my grapes, everything loves it. So yeah, I'm working in my yard quite a bit and trying to stay focused so I don't go to a worry place. Have you been spending much time in the worry place since all this began? Well, I really have made a lifetime of trying to avoid that place. Someone once shared with me a long time ago that worrying is like praying for what you don't want. And at the time, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It made so much sense. It was literally an investment of my mental energy that I was making with each and every thought. And so you're trying diligently, it sounds like, to not worry about this virus. It is a lifetime commitment I have to my own peace of mind, yes. As you watch and feel what's going on in the world right now, what strikes you? Oh, my heart just aches. My heart aches for everybody. So I find myself balancing my spiritual center, really, with my rational mind. And my rational mind is very good at planning. I've, I've been educating and, and teaching around long-range planning for most of my life. So, yeah, it's a, it's a balance. And are you able to achieve it to your satisfaction? No. <laughs> 
No. Separate from that, we've talked about before, I've faced death uh, for a good portion of the last five years, as you know. And that is where the intersection between COVID-19 and my situation come to play. I had a traumatic stress-induced heart attack in 2017. Which you came through. Yeah, I did. They're also called Takutsubo myocardial infarctions, named after a Japanese doctor right around 1970, 75, I want to say, after a Japanese octopus fish trap. So what happens is um, it's not like a typical blockage-style heart attack. I don't know how much you know about them, but the long and the short of it is that if the conditions are right, and we can talk about that, it's really important as a separate piece, the body's fight-or-flight system engages, and it goes into overload, essentially. And the upper left chamber of the heart blows up like a balloon, and then it implodes. And that's where the correlation and the analogy to the octopus trap came in for the Japanese doctor. There was nothing that was known about it beyond the very basics at the point where I had mine. The science had not advanced. My personal doctor here had had two other patients that had had them. She did not know a lot about them, nor the cardiologist that I ended up seeing after the fact. And that was, uh, that was a big problem. It just about killed me. In October of 2018, I was given by their neurologist two months to two years to live. That outer limit is this fall. So how does that experience... Let's go with how does it help you to get through this experience? Whew. (laughs) Don't mind me if I laugh a little bit at that one. I'm going to fast forward. After the attack, three months later, they found that my heart had healed. But for some reason, my doctors could not explain. My blood pressure, which has been my entire life quite low, beautifully low, began to rise. I was tracking it. You know, I'm a data gal. About 15 points a month. And it would spike when I'd go into their office and we would have to deal with this puzzle that was this Takutsubo myocardial infarction and what it was doing. Well, it continued to spike and it didn't stop. And at the height, my blood pressure reached 233 over something. Whoa. But you got it under control, obviously. Well, that's when I was given two months to two years to live because they could not figure out why. And the neurologist, who was a tenant locum, relatively recent graduate from medical school from UCSF, didn't think it was neurological. And I had previously been sent to an adrenal specialist who found I was testing positive for two fairly rare diseases that are generally not seen together. They could not put it together. So the neurologist ended up referring me to UCSF, which is a high-quality teaching medical institution, 
they helped me save my life. It was a combination of factors. The medication that I was being given and had been given since I had the attack was not the appropriate medication. But it is the medication that's given to folks that have heart attacks, regular blockage style heart attacks. In fact, it was exacerbating my condition, but that wasn't the only thing. Fast forward March 2019, I finally learned, thanks to an article in the New York Times about the European Heart Journal study done that month, March of 2019, that named for the first time Takutsubo syndrome. And that describes the mental and physical condition someone who's had one of these traumatic stress-induced heart attacks is going to be left with. So there's that piece of it. What that means, really, it gets back to our fight or flight system. What happens when you add, say, chronic pain? What happens when you add other disruptions to your normal blood pressure? So you have anxiety that's free-floating from COVID-19. You now have economic pressure. You have pressure with your kids who, not in your case, but in another person's case, are home from school. And maybe you're trying to conduct your business from home. And what's your head doing all this time? It's spinning. And that's part of the problem with respect to anxiety. And it's also, again, the link back to the potentiality for anyone on the planet right now faced with these kinds of stressors to set themselves up for a traumatic stress-induced heart attack. The aftermath, the Takutsubo syndrome, leaves me with a diminished ability to handle stress. With this background, and you know, it's fair to say I think everybody on the planet has some previous stress in their life that is exacerbated by this situation. When you look at it that way, what is your best advice to work through it? What do you do, for instance, as someone who is at risk here, not only for, you know, physically, um, just because you're in that age group, but also historically, given the fact that you have all of this previous stuff that you've had to deal with. Am I stressing you out? No, I'm thinking about this and trying to organize my thoughts in a way that will allow you to chop them up if need be. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So right now, we need to recognize that there are things coming at us from multiple unexpected directions. And so at any given moment, we may be hit with an unexpected large piece of tragic news, whether it's personally in our community, in our country, or in the world. So that's going to be the normal for a while. What I know about crisis management is that when people are in it, as I told you before, I think I shared that I spent years working with a nonprofit that dealt with domestic violence and sexual assault. And crisis management was the order of the day. 
And when we're in that place, our minds kind of go berserk. It's been studied at length. And it's the point when we tend to make the worst possible decisions. So do recognize when you have been caught up in stress and give yourself permission not to be making decisions in that moment until you can find your calm. That's piece one. This is about essentially self-monitoring your mental process just like you would self-monitor your larger physical process. So that's one part of it. Be aware of where you are in any moment and that there may be stuff flying at you from the outer cosmos sitting behind you, for example. The other part of it is to have some routines that can help you build a center for your attention. Many of us use meditation or a meditation practice, but it really boils down to your attention, Robert. What is it focused upon? What is it captured by in any moment? That's the definition of our attention. I had a teacher once share with me, one of my greatest mentors, Helen Palmer, that it is whatever it's focused upon or captured by. And she referred to it as our eternal observer, which I just found wonderful. In your life, as this is going on, what is capturing your attention? Well, I'm monitoring the press. And one of the things that I just saw to come full circle with this conversation in the last two days is that they've recently seen a spike in people presenting themselves to the ER with cardiac arrest or cardiac arrest-like symptoms. So as the data unfolds, we'll get real-time numbers as to what was stress causing and inducing blockage style heart attacks or what was stress causing traumatic stress induced heart attacks. And I'll share with your audience that I would not expect that your local medical provider is truly going to be up to speed on Takotsubo syndrome or truly what's now known about these particular types of heart attacks. And I would strongly encourage you, because of that, to become familiar for yourself. In my case, I had chronic back disc deterioration. I had a cavity that had plans to get pulled the next day, but during the middle of an oral surgery, I got hit in the face with a dental tool, and it caused uh, internal bleeding. And all of those factors became my personal D-Day for my Takotsubo attack. I'm now out the other side of the attack, but these attacks in a minority of cases do tend to repeat themselves. So I'm under doctor's orders for very minute amounts of medication that help my adrenal glands and my limbic system maintain. That's a big portion for me now. But I'm also recognizing that we're all potentially facing our mortality one at a time together. Yeah? And that requires a whole nother level of preparedness. Preparing for the inevitable. How do you do that? 
gosh, that's a, that's a huge question, isn't it? <laughs> How does one prepare oneself? Well, it can be a lifetime process or it can be a process that's managed in crisis. And this comes back to, are we making really good, thoughtful decisions and plans or are we flying by the seat of our proverbial pants? And I, I am a planner. I, I'm a planner and have been a planner my whole life because of personal, financial, spiritual, and emotional need for my own self-responsibility to be one. And I've taken that approach throughout my life. I've not had a choice. So here I am facing this same place. But I've had uh, a different experience in the last five years, Robert, as we talked about on the front end of the program. I faced a wildfire in 2015. My property was behind the fire lines. And my husband and I sheltered a number of our neighbors in place. Um, we faced our deaths then as we watched a firestorm directly above us in the sky. And then with this and being given two months to two years to live, um, I had to deal with the emotional shock before I could deal with any of the rest of it, including taking responsibility of how to get myself out of the predicament when my doctors could not. So it took everything I had. And all the while, looking at death right there if I lost my cool. So I used every moment that I could to sit and still my mind. That thought was first introduced to me as a kid. I tried as hard as I could to get my mind to stop and I'd clench my, my hands and my face and, oh, I can't stop thinking, how do you do it? How do you do it? It comes back to that, that key. And the key is in our attention. It is whatever it's focused upon or captured by. Well, for most of us who have spent our lives spinning in our heads, thinking about today or what we were doing yesterday or planning for tomorrow or laughing or crying or whatever it is, the attention is going at a rapid pace in the brain and it never has a chance to be still. And many have suggested that for there to be stillness and peace of mind, both the mind and the body have to be still simultaneously. And when that happens, the heart as well can rest. And it's that opportunity that we open ourselves to a much greater force of energy that can be shared with us at that point. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. And that leads me to a question about hope. Because a lot of people that I've talked to have referred to all of this as, yeah, it's dark, it's hard, it's deadly. But there has been a lot of conversation about how Number one, the earth is resting right now, which is a big deal. Uh, there's been conversation about people who wouldn't tend to go inward, going inward and finding out stuff that they didn't know about themselves. What gives you hope in this moment in history? 
Well, when we talked about this before, I mentioned that to truly experience hope, one needs to have a base of peace of mind to do so. So the key to getting there, I think, does rest with finding some amount of peace of mind for oneself. In between, focusing one's attention on an activity can suffice to help strengthen the attention. Helen taught us to think of it like a muscle that can be strengthened like any other. And that's true with the meditation practice as well. It's called a practice because we're not perfect until we eventually get a strong enough muscle to get to a place of stillness that we can retain for a length of time that becomes extraordinary. The peace of mind, the clarity that it gives us is truly out of this world. The other thing that I add that gives me hope is that it's been predicted that during this period, this chronological point in time, that there would be a, a unifying principle or force or entity that would bring the world together. I'm watching a virus have an enormous impact on bringing us all together in a way we have never been before, including to a point where we are all literally facing the potentiality for our mortality simultaneously. And I'm not clear historically that there is any parallel for this time. There, certainly there have been plagues but not that we could watch in real time or understand among one another in real time. So there's hope in seeing changing patterns of behavior forced by the circumstances. There is hope when we universally can focus our attention on nothing more than our universal peace of mind. That would be extraordinary, in my opinion. Is there anything else about this on any level that has crossed your mind since seems like about 10 years ago this started? Limit setting is a healthy and a good thing. We can set healthy physical limits. We can set healthy mental limits. We can set healthy conversational limits, spiritual limits, emotional limits, and time management as well, that practice works across all of those areas. So to set healthy boundaries for oneself gives an opportunity to regroup and be present for the next, the next go-round. We haven't really touched on the spiritual aspects of, of this. I mean, we've kind of been dancing around it, but yeah. I know you have a, a deeply intact spiritual life and what occurs to you when you think about the spiritual part of COVID-19? What's the truism when somebody gives you lemons you make lemonade? Mm -hmm. COVID-19 is teaching us whether we want to or not to rise beyond the limits of our personal ego natures to recognize that survival uh, is a universal matter. Good place to stop 
Johnny Whitmore, Hidden Valley Lake, perfect place on earth, California. You've been listening to Filling the Air with Words, version 2.0. Find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitter. Dedicated to the life and memory of our friend Jane Shannon. 